And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. It's a little appropriate. Our uh, our theme that we use for triple bites. We don't use it very often anymore because that show is on hiatus um, for a while. <laughs> But congratulations to Captain Kirk and the crew of the Blue Origin New Shepard mission. And we're going to talk about that and some other things related to same today. Good afternoon, everyone. We are live from the bunker. My name is Jason Hunt. I am the editor-in-chief here at Sci-Fi for Me. And happy to have you along. The chat is open and live. We are actually broadcasting live today. We're not pre-recorded, so you can share your pithy witticisms. And uh, maybe somebody will react or respond. And it's always better to respond than react, right? We are also available as a podcast for those of you who like to listen to shows like this. We're on various different podcast players, and we have an audience from around the world. We're very happy to have all of you with us as well, if you are listening to this as a podcast. So, I want to start with a... uh, Oh, yeah, by the way... We do have a newsletter too. You can sign up. Email address live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. I gotta get all of the all of the all of the buttons pushed here in the right place and and talk at the same time. So sometimes I haven't had enough coffee to do it all. I want to start with uh, William Shatner. Congratulations to the Blue Origin team. Their successful launch and recovery of the of the new Shepard mission that uh, launched this morning went up and and over and back to the ground again and everybody's fine and and it it is it has been a successful mission all the way around so we want to congratulate them and when when it was first announced that that Shatner was going up in this mission of course everybody makes the makes the Star Trek connection of course and it felt to me a little bit like, not necessarily a gimmick, but it's, it's very smart marketing on the part of Jeff Bezos because who better to go into space than Captain Kirk, right? And Mrs. Boss has even made the, made the connection that uh, now that Shatner has gone up in the Blue Origin space module, that uh, Elon Musk or or Richard Branson, either one of them, should be reaching out to Mark Hamill and James Earl Jones, maybe Harrison Ford. I don't know that Harrison Ford would do it. He might, I don't know, given his his aviation background, he might be willing to do it. But uh, to uh, 
put on a different kind of space race, I guess, because, you know, what's better, Star Trek or Star Wars? Can we, can we go back to having those arguments instead of what we're ag- actually arguing about now? Uh, those were the days, right? When, when all of us who were interested in this kind of stuff were off in our little corner and we felt a little solidarity because we were off in our little corner I think one of the worst things that's ever happened to the science fiction and fantasy genre is its popularization. Take that for what it's worth. But anyway, let's start here with William Shatner's comments. After he got all out of the out of the capsule, he's talking to Jeff Bezos. He's on on camera here. I'm going to play just a little bit of this clip because it does go and and illustrate uh, and encapsulate pretty much the profundity of all of this because, you know, it, Shatner's got a reputation and, of course, everybody likes to, you know, imitate and do the the Shatnerism, you know, way, way of talking. But I want you to hear this, and hopefully I've got this up lo- loud enough, but I want you to hear this uh, from from William Shatner after returning from space. He's talking to Jeff Bezos here. What you have given me is the most profound experience I can imagine. Uh, I'm so filled with emotion about what just happened. I, I just, it's extraordinary, extraordinary. I hope I never recover from this. I hope that I can uh, maintain what I feel now. I, I don't want to lose it. It's so... It's so much larger than, than me and life. And it hasn't got anything to do with the little green planet, the blue orb, and the... It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the enormity and the quickness and the suddenness of life and death of the all oh life. I hope I never recover from this. I think that's it's it's interesting to see cuz Shatner likes to have fun and and he he plays with the the you know the banter and back and forth and whatnot on on Twitter and and we see that side of him. And to to see him so overwhelmed and overcome with emotion with this it, it is a profound moment not just for him but it it also goes toward what Bezos and Musk and Branson and, and all of those guys are trying to do now I know Bezos has got these these grand ideas about you know getting the the uh, air pollution, industrial stuff out into space where it's not going to be harmful, and you know there there are uh, there are merits to that, uh, and we're going to talk about a little bit of that here in a little bit. But th- this kind of thing, this kind of an event, where you have Captain Kirk in a spaceship. It, this does more. This is this is like having the the cast of Star Trek at the hangar when they rolled out the space shuttle Enterprise. Now remember, it was originally Orbiter L one hundred and one, 
and a fan petition. There was this uh, mail-in drive. There was this push. Well, it's the first, you know, it's the first modern U.S. spacecraft. Of course, it should be named Enterprise. And, of course, and, and Gerald Ford managed to do that, and they, they renamed the Enterprise. Of course, it hasn't ever flown in space. Should have. <clears throat> but uh, it was a, a, a moment. It was a moment in, in our space history. And this is the kind of the same thing. It's one of those things where you get a name. You get some kind of an event to bring the attention of the general public to something. I remember all of the times where we watched the space shuttle launch. And when the Space Shuttle Columbia first launched, and when Atlantis first launched, and Discovery first launched, and all of these, all of these firsts for the space shuttles, as the new one rolled out, and the next one rolled out, and the next one rolled out, eventually, the launch of the space shuttle was no big deal. We got to a point in our... Uh, appreciation for the space program that it was just a matter of course. Oh, a space shuttle is going up. Okay. Now, of course, the destruction of the Challenger and the destruction of Columbia changed some of that. Maybe not necessarily for the better in all, in all aspects of that. But it does drive home the dangers and Shatner even talks about it here. You know, you're you're in this very thin bubble of atmosphere. And he said you you get to that moment. It's only maybe about 50 miles and you cross the line and it's black. And it's the difference between life and death because you go out into the black Without any kind of protection, you're dead. I mean, there's there's no air, there's no atmosphere, there's nothing there's nothing to sustain you in space except that little, tiny, fragile shell of metal and steel, aluminum, or whatever whatever those capsules are made of. And if anything goes wrong, anything, that's it. Life is fragile. Yes, our planet is somewhat fragile, but I think our, our I think our planet can survive a great deal before we're past the point of no return. I don't think we're there yet. And quite honestly, I don't think that mankind has the wherewithal to do permanent harm to the planet. Eventually, whatever whatever happens, I mean, we've seen this with the pandemic, and environmentalists are all, you know, the planet's recovering. This is what happens when you're not driving all the time, and the planet recovers. There's all this stuff. See, the planet can recover. They kind of undermined their own argument to a certain extent, but that's that's not neither here nor there. But this this event brings the public eye to the commercial efforts, the private space industry. Not just Blue Origin, but 
SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, all of them have been making efforts. And what was it I was seeing the other day? SpaceX is, oh, it, yeah, that's what it was. SpaceX and, where did I see this? Um, I got to look at this because I just ran across this a couple of days ago. Oh, I think I've got it in our notes for Saturday. Here it is. All right, let me let me flip this over here so you can see this. This is a SpaceX Endeavor along with uh, NASA and a company called... Um, what is this? Intuitive Machines? What is this? Okay, so it's called Luna Prize... And it is uh, something that SpaceX has been putting together here. And LunaPrize.com, I guess, is the, is the thing. Uh, for the first time in history, private civilians are invited to take part in the world's first crowdsourced space-time capsule. Heading to the moon with SpaceX on board the Falcon 9 rocket in first quarter of 2022. So you, as a private citizen, can spend money. They've got three different levels. You can spend money and you can include a message or a photo or some, some kind of something, a memorial, that will live in a time capsule on the moon. Now, we're familiar with time capsules. You know, we put all of these different things in from the 1930s or the 1980s or the 1800s or whatnot. We put it in a box and we, and we seal it. And it's not to be opened for 100 years. It's not to be opened for 500 years. It's basically this, here's who we were as a people at this time in this place. And this is going to be the same kind of thing where you get this time capsule up on the moon. And eventually, somebody is going to be back on the moon and maybe 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 500 years from now, they open this thing to see who we were as a people now. And I really, 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 really hope that nobody mentions Twitter or Facebook in this time capsule. I mean, just let's, 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 let's let those things lie fallow, shall we? But it, it does, it does show, you know, the commercialization of space is, is becoming a thing, not just for governments, you know, NASA or the Chinese space program. I've got this here where you've got uh, China getting ready to launch uh, their second crew to their space station. <clears throat> How many of you knew that China had a space station? Not the International Space Station. China's got their own. It is the um, <clears throat> Tiangong is the space station's name. Shenzhou-13 spacecraft expected to be launched from the Gobi Desert in the early hours of October 16th. Three astronauts on board includes a woman, 41-year-old Wang Yaping, and they will spend six months at Tiangong. 
Uh, this is uh, this is a thing. China's got their own space station. It's not it's not part of any international endeavor. They want to do it themselves. And maybe you've caught it in the news. Maybe you didn't. But China apparently, uh, I think I think I read they had landed a probe on the moon. They're moving forward with their own space program and their efforts are going to be completely independent of everything that anybody else is doing because it's China. And China doesn't want to be part of the international community in such a way. Okay, they want to do their own thing. Fair enough, that's it. Go ahead, more power to you. But you also have uh, commercial endeavors... And NASA is working with SpaceX, and I don't, uh, I don't know how much involvement they've got with Blue Origin or with Virgin Galactic, but all of these efforts to get into space. And the people that are running things are my age, a little bit older. We grew up on Star Trek. We, we watched Star Wars and Doctor Who, and we read Asimov and Bradbury and Heinlein. Rocket ship Galileo is a formative experience for a lot of science fiction fans. You know, reading that book, reading Space Cadet, Stranger in a Strange Land. You know, the, the idea, the allure of going out into space still, still holds the imaginations for a lot of people and fuels our inventiveness. There are a lot of things that we do because we were inspired by the space program or Star Trek or whatnot. I mean, cell phones, look at cell phones, we've got a holographic technology, all of these different things that we have. Communication satellites orbiting the Earth, that's, that goes all the way back to Heinlein. He had the idea before it was ever really an idea. And I would much rather be inspired by Heinlein than Orwell. You could debate whether or not Orwell is in the lead, given what everything is going. Did you see, Mrs. Boss, did you see the, Aust the thing going on in Austria? Where one of their, one of their, uh, one of their members of parliament passed out while she was giving a speech... Um, I've, I've looked at this video and I can't, I can't figure either it was dehydration or blood sugar or she locked her knees. And those of us who have been in marching band, you know, you never lock your knees. Uh, but apparently this, this thing has been, uh, this thing has been brewing. The former, former premier, former prime minister of Austria is under investigation for corruption, I guess. And after she passed out, and they took care of her, then uh, one, of the, one of the other members of parliament came out with the accusation documents and handed it to whoever was presiding over the thing, and whoever was presiding over the thing throws the paperwork down behind them on the floor, and apparently there was some kind of altercation, and the headlines describe it as a riot. Inside Parliament of Austria. Now I'm thinking, hold on. 
Um, I know Australia is doing their thing. Um, we don't need this to be a race to see which government is going to collapse first, folks. I mean, that would not be a good... Well, hmm, now I'm going to have to think about that. Yeah, well, okay. I'm, I'm going to put a pin in that one. And, uh... <laughs> We'll, we'll we'll see, but anyway, yeah. the 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 thing about you know having having Shatner, you know Shatner being on Blue Origin, this is obviously it's a marketing thing. It's look, we got Captain Kirk in our spaceship. Okay, fine. But the more this kind of thing happens, and the more we talk about it, the more the news media covers it, and the more the blogosphere covers it, and the and the YouTubers and all of all of the different channels that are out there for talk. At the more we talk about this, the more we normalize the idea of regular people going into space. Now, it's it's been you know a lot of times the astronauts come out of the Air Force. Or the Space Force, I guess, was, will be a, a thing. The Navy, uh, various different scientists and specialists. But now you have access for the general public. Now, granted, it still costs a lot of money. But, like with anything else, the more you do it and the higher demand there is eventually costs come down. Look at what happened with VCRs. I've, I've used this example over and over and over again. And usually it's an argument for introducing market forces into the healthcare system. But with VCRs, when they first came out, there were four, five, six hundred dollars, eight hundred dollars. Now they're 50 bucks. So as demand increases and as supply and research and you know research and development and all of these different things happen the cost is going to come down to a somewhat less unreasonable cost i think now it may still eventually it may still be expensive for a while but at some point a, a good number of people will be able to afford a ticket on a space plane. And some of it could just be that, you know, just go up and go over. And, you know, it's like it's like flying on the Concorde. Only now you're it takes you up into space. You're weightless for a few minutes and then you, you land in Paris or, or wherever. <clears throat> the technology is eventually going to get us there. And futurism... We will catch up to the future. We will catch up to all of those things that we have imagined over the years. Now, warp drive is still going to be a thing of the imagination. Hyperspace. I don't think we're, we're going to crack that anytime soon. Transporters. Probably not. Although, you know, there's been some progress made in that research, but we're not there yet. It is inevitable that space will be commercialized. 
is that a good thing? Are you ready to see a McDonald's on the moon? Or, you know, we get we get the space station bigger and bigger. We keep a- adding modules to it. And eventually somebody's going to figure out how to do artificial gravity. Eventually. Again, maybe not in my lifetime. But people are going to figure it out. And, and then you're walking around on the space station. Hey, let's grab a burger and fries. You know, I mean, that... One of the things that strikes me about the Honor Harrington series, for example, is the fact that there are, on the space stations, there are restaurants, there are are commercial endeavors, and some of them are franchises. You know, Dempsey's is, is great for steaks, I guess. But that kind of thing is inevitable. We're going to see private industry, private companies going out into space. It's not a bad thing. Hopefully, there is some degree of responsibility that we don't end up, you know, overcrowding the the lower and upper orbitals. And who knows, maybe at some point, somebody gets up there and says, hey, We've got this big storage container. We're going to go all the way around the planet and we're going to gobble up all of the dead dead satellites. Let's clean up the junk. Let's clean up all the flotsam and jetsam that are that are in orbit around around the planet. Satellites that no longer work. Various and sundry different pieces of debris and whatnot. And let's clean up out there. Because all of that stuff is a traffic hazard. Because the long, the more you get various different spaceships up there, and I know they're at a different altitude, but eventually might be a problem. So some industrious, imaginative inventor should start working on that if they haven't already and be thinking about how we get rid of all the junk in orbit before... Uh, before too long so anyway there is that and when we get back we're going to look a little bit more on the commercialization side of this stuff because there are some who are already thinking along those lines and might be good might be bad we'll talk a little bit more about it right after this stay tuned this is sci-fi for me radio Be sure to connect with us on social media and subscribe to our channels so you don't miss our next broadcast. Experience makes the difference. Since 2009, Sci-Fi For Me has been bringing you news and opinion from all over the web. Science fiction, fantasy, and horror have been on our radar from the beginning. And now, Sci-Fi For Me is bringing you something new. A new direction, new partnerships, new content, and all-new mix of programs on an all-new channel. Sci-Fi For Me TV, delivering the multiverse since 2009. Back live from the bunker, Jason Hunt here. Happy to have all of you along with us. 
And if you are catching us in repeats or playback, you are welcome to share your thoughts in the comments. If you're on Odyssey, uh, my understanding is you have to have an Odyssey account in order to comment, and that's a security measure on their part to try to keep the, keep the spam down a little bit. But you're more than welcome to leave your thoughts and uh, join the conversation. You can send us an email, live from the bunker at sci-fi-for-me.com. We do invite you to subscribe to our newsletter because we put one of those out every now and again. The Harvard Business Review back in 2021, in February, actually, uh, had an article that they posted here. Headline, The Commercial Space Age is Here. Private space travel is just the beginning. And this is an article basically talking about uh, the commercial space industry and the opportunities that are there, uh, the space economy, as it were, uh, reading from the article, this is from uh, Matt uh, Weinzerl and Mihak Sarang. I have no, uh, I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. So, reading from the article, there's no shortage of hype surrounding the commercial space industry. But while tech leaders promise us moon bases and settlements on Mars, the space economy has thus far remained distinctly local, at least in a cosmic sense. Last year, however, we crossed an important threshold. For the first time in human history, humans accessed space via a vehicle built and owned not by any government, but by a private corporation with its sights set on affordable space settlement. Now, we know that, that Elon Musk has his sights on Mars. It was the first significant step towards building an economy both in space and for space. The implications for business, policy, and society at large are hard to overstate. In 2019, 95% of the estimated $366 billion in revenue earned in the space sector, that's not money spent, folks, that's money earned in the space industry, uh, was from the space for Earth economy. That is, goods or services produced in space for use on Earth. The space for Earth economy includes telecommunications and Internet infrastructure, Earth observation capabilities, national security satellites, and more. The, this economy is booming, and though research shows that it faces the challenges of overcrowding and monopolization that tend to arise whenever companies compete for a scarce natural resource, projections for its future are optimistic. And this goes on to talk about the various different goods and services. You know, you've got SpaceX and Boeing and Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic and, and this kind of thing. And it says here uh, further down, In contrast to governments, the private sector is eager to put people in space to pursue their own personal interests, not the states, and then supply the demand they create. This is the vision driving SpaceX, which in its first 20 years has entirely upended the rocket launch industry, securing 60% of the global commercial launch market and building ever larger spacecraft designed to ferry passengers not just to the International Space Station, but also to its own promised settlement on Mars. 
This is the kind of thing, folks, this is inevitable, where people are going to find a way. Life uh, finds a way, right? We, we're going to be back on the moon. We're going to Mars. The question is, who's going to fit the bill, foot the bill? Where you have either government or private enterprise or a combination of both, I mean, NASA and SpaceX work together, in this race, this drive to get out there and find things and discover new things and settle on different planets. And a lot of people figure that the, that the survival of the human race depends on settling colonies. I'm not sure that that's entirely the case. But some people believe that. Some people think, you know, with overpopulation and overcrowding and pollution and, and, and environmentalism and all of that. May, maybe things will be better if there's less people on the planet. We go some other planet. And we learn from our mistakes and we don't make the same mistakes on this new planet that we did here. Okay. Some people believe that. And it could very well be true. We do learn from our mistakes. We do that here all the time. It's part of the, the life experience of humanity. Now, some people don't learn their lessons from history. <coughs> some people learn those lessons all too well. And it's the application of that knowledge you gain both from history and from personal experience, you should choose to do good with it, not evil. I mean, I know the dark side has cookies, but anyway, so the commercial space age is here. Here's, a, here's another one. Uh, this is an article on tesinc.ca. It's a California uh, outfit. Will asteroid mining be an outer space gold rush? Now we're talking about even further past Mars to the asteroid belt. Now we know, uh, I, have, I had reported on this several years ago, and for the life of me, I have not been able to find it again. This is back when we were doing the Week in Review, and, and I didn't have as extensive a notes list as we do now. But there is a company, and I can't remember what it is. There's a company out there, at least was in the pre preliminary stages of designing and, and coming up with prototypes and, and plans for a what essentially would be a truck stop at the asteroid belt we're not going to mine for minerals we're not going to we're not going to do any kind of industrial thing we're going to set up shop as a supply depot fuel food resources that spaceships can stop there resupply on their way out further to the rest of the solar system. And for the life of me, I cannot remember the name of the company that was doing this, and I haven't been able to find it back in, in past shows. It was quite a while ago. But that also 
goes back to, you know, this has been a thing that's been discussed for a while. Now, as far back as, well, 14 years ago, when James came up with the idea of, let's hey, let's do a new Star Trek when he was five, one of the things that we talked about was the uh, a base in the asteroid belt on Ceres. You can do that kind of thing. And we're getting to the point where the technology will be there for us to actually do it for real. So reading from this article here at TES Inc., <coughs> excuse me, there are enough resources and asteroids that some are valued in the quadrillions. In September, a Japanese spacecraft called Hayabusa 2 deployed and landed two rovers on a small asteroid named Ryugu, which is named after an underwater palace in a Japanese folktale. In the story, a fisherman rescues a turtle, who in return allows the fisherman to ride on his back to the underwater palace. And there, he retrieves a small jeweled box as a reward, which he brings back to his village. Like the fisherman in the folk story, Hayabusa 2 will retrieve something from this asteroid, samples of the asteroid itself, which is hoped to contain metals like nickel, cobalt, and iron, as well as a variety of other elements. If the survey confirms that the asteroid is composed of what astronomers predict, then the true treasure of Ryugu might be a bit more than a jeweled box. Its mineral wealth might be $82.76 billion in one hunk of space rock, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> Continuing here, there is a lot of money floating around in space. Neil deGrasse Tyson famously declared that the first trillionaire would be an asteroid miner, although Jeff Bezos is gunning for that position at the moment. <clears throat> Just to give a sense of the potential value out there, the value of Earth's annual extracted minerals and metal, metals and minerals is about $660 billion. Ryugu represents a large chunk of that, right? Well, there are far more valuable asteroids out there, too. In the asteroid belt, there is an asteroid named 16 Psyche that is worth an estimated 10,000 quadrillion dollars. If you write that number out, it's 10 followed by 3, 6, 9, 12, 15, 18... 21 zeros past 10. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of value in a rock. And we've talked about, you know, prospecting for gold, but you also have the minerals that can be used for electronics, for building spacecraft, for building automobiles, for building computers, uh, metals for pretty much anything that you that you need it's out there we just have to figure out how to get it here continuing here asteroid mining has been likened to a space age gold rush only there's a few crucial differences <clears throat> first gold is just one of the many valuable valuable minerals we can expect to find 
While gold is an important and valuable resource, what we really need are the many other minerals we can find in space. Most of the valuable minerals in the space dust that form the Earth have been sucked into its core, locked away forever, unless we want to destroy the planet. What we mine today comes from the finite deposits of comets and meteorites that struck the planet's surface over its history. Those materials will eventually run out, and even if we get another delivery from outer space, it might render the whole economic endeavor moot. We need precious metals to build smartphones, but we also need living human beings to buy smartphones. Second, regular people aren't going to be able to pan for precious metals on the surface of an asteroid. There is a handful of corporations dedicated to asteroid mining operations, notably planetary resources. To date, the company has launched a couple of satellites that will, likely, that will survey likely candidates for mining from Earth's orbit. Ultimately, however, their vision of asteroid mining will consist of sending out space probes and developing fully automated mining and processing facilities on or near their target asteroid. They also plan to construct a fuel depot in space where water extracted from asteroids can be split into hydrogen and liquid oxygen for jet fuel. This this could be the this could be the company that I was thinking about for the for the the truck stop in space possibly but it's not just private industry that's been thinking about this this is a bill that was introduced in uh, 2014 H.R. House Resolution 5063 to promote the development of a commercial asteroid resources industry. Uh, this is a report from the National Space Society from July of 2014. So this has been seven years ago. But I find it interesting. U U.S. Representatives Bill Posey, representative uh, Republican from Florida, and Derek Kilmer, Democrat from Washington, have introduced bipartisan legislation to expand opportunities and protections for private space companies looking to explore space. The American Space Technology for Exploring Resource Opportunities in Deep Space, the Asteroids Act of 2014, <clears throat> establishes and protects property rights for commercial space exploration and utilization of asteroid resources. So you could stake a claim... And the government will recognize that it's your property. I'm not sure how that's going to work. <clears throat> I don't know where this is sitting as far as the actual legislation. I don't know if this went anywhere. This is the first I'm hearing of it, so I don't know that it went anywhere uh, past this. But uh, it's, it's interesting because the government clearly has been thinking about this kind of thing. I mean, we've got the Space Force. We have uh, commercial and government entities that are working for the next thing in space. NASA's been working on some stuff. And they've been talking about the, you know, getting back to the moon. I don't know if the current administration has any thoughts about that, but the previous administration did. And the next administration hopefully will. Uh, I do know that NASA's budget has increased over the year, over the last few years, so there's been more money and resources for NASA to do things, although they haven't really been talking about manned programs yet. Uh, but they are working on the next 
spacecraft designed for manned missions to the moon. Of course, they got to figure out how to get to Mars. So this is coming. This is inevitable. And the question now becomes, will it be a race? Will it be a race back to the moon? Will it be a race to Mars? Will it be a race out to the asteroid belt and beyond? Uh, here's, an, here's an article from Futurism. Uh, what's the date on this? <clears throat> I don't see a date. Scientists want to build a space station inside an asteroid. Basically, the idea is you carve it out from the inside. You get all of those resources there that you can then use to build your station inside the rock. Uh, the best type of asteroid to build a space station inside would be made of solid rock and rotating several times per minute, according to the Viennese scientists' research, which was published in the preprint preprint server RVIX in December. The idea is that it would provide enough centrifugal force to let space miners chisel away at the asteroid from the center outward. It, you know, that's, that's, not a, that's not a bad idea where you could actually put little maneuvering thrusters at critical positions at various different strategic locations around the asteroid where you are and use those thrusters to generate the centrifugal force to create gravity, artificial gravity, for sure. But you look at uh, a lot of these stations that spin. We see these, you know, 2001, Babylon 5, and the, and the like. And gravity is heavier as you get closer toward the center. And as you get out toward the edge... It's a little bit lighter. So you'd have to figure a way to make sure that the, that the centrifugal force is constant and steady so that gravity does what gravity does and you don't end up with people smeared all over the paint. I may have to incorporate this into my John Murphy stories because that actually is not a bad idea. But here we have... <coughs> excuse me, folks... I I spent most of yesterday building a stage for Simone Biles. So I am one full everything hurts today. So um, my my voice is probably a little strained because I was up late and I'm still recovering. Here's an article here from space.com dated June 14th of this year. Headline, China launches commercial asteroid Hunter and three other satellites into space. And this is why I say, is this going to be a race? Because they've got their own space station. And I, I, re, I remember reading a book. Um, <clears throat> Moon Hoax, I think is what it was called. Basically putting out the idea, and it was fiction, it was, it was the first of a series of books, and I need to go back and look at it because I haven't read the second one yet. But the idea of the story was that China had decided to go ahead and gear up and uh, pursue their own space program and launch a manned mission to the moon. And as part of that, they put out a lot of propaganda that the American missions, the Apollo missions for the moon, were all fake. 
Now, of course, <clears throat> there are people, and my great uncle was one of them, there are people who believe that we've never gone to the moon, that the whole thing was made up in a television studio, and we've never been there. Now, the physical evidence that we have been there, of course, is real, and, and we have a lot of it. Uh, but, you know, you get to a, a story like um, Capricorn One, which fictionalizes this very idea, this notion that these people went to Mars, but they didn't actually go to Mars. It was all made up in a studio. And the the premise of this book, <clears throat> I want to I want to say it was called Moon Hoax, is basically that the 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 Chinese government wants to be the first to land on the moon, and they're making the claim that they're the first to land on the moon, and they start doing things on the far side of the moon where nobody can look and see what they're doing. And of course, it's it's a military thing, and it's a you know. Uh, sneaky, sneaky sort of thing for the Chinese to be doing. And it really, honestly, it sounds exactly like the kind of thing the Chinese would do. The Chinese Communist Party. Let me, let me, let me clarify, because I, I know that there is a distinct difference between the Chinese people and the Chinese Communist Party. It's basically the same kind of thing that we have here between liberals and the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party right now is being run by a bunch of lunatic fanatics. I don't think that most liberals are lunatic fanatics. The Chinese Communist Party are lunatic fanatics in their own right. And the Chinese people, I think, are victims of that. So we have to make those distinctions, right? <clears throat> But yeah, it looks like the, China, the Chinese have been launching their own efforts. Uh, this from the article. China launched four new satellites into orbit on Thursday, June 10th, including a commercial satellite for tracking near-Earth asteroids. A Long March 2D rocket lifted off from Taiyuan Satellite Launch Center in North China on Thursday. Uh, footage from the launch, footage of the launch shows white insulation tiles designed to help keep fuel at the right temperature falling to the ground as the rocket soars into the sky. Aboard was the Yangwang-1 spacecraft for Chinese space resources company Origin Space. The firm describes the small satellite as China's first optical space telescope. It has a wide field of view and collects visible and ultraviolet light to detect near-Earth asteroids. So they're, uh, they're planning to survey uh, the asteroid belt, various different, well, near-Earth asteroids, probably like the one we, we were going to nudge, the one that just went past us here not too long ago. Um, <clears throat> and, of course, they're going to be putting up a bunch of other satellites, probably to spy on us. But the Chinese are making efforts... They're looking at the asteroids as a potential resource, as are we. And it's shaping up to be a brand new space race, folks. I mean, the Russians have, beat a, have beaten us. They've beaten us into space with, uh, with the very first 
man-made satellite with Sputnik. They beat us with a living, living creature into orbit. They beat us with a man into orbit. We beat them by putting men on the moon first. And then, of course, the space shuttle program, which is now defunct, and we have to... We've had to rely on the Russians and their Soyuz rockets to get us up to the International Space Station. So it's been a kind of a back-and-a-forth thing, but the Soviet Union is gone. So our, our space race, as part of the Cold War, doesn't really have the same kind of uh, complexion that it used to have. So now... Are we starting to see the beginnings, or have I, I think we've been in a Cold War with the Chinese Communists for a while now. Uh, commercially, they have, uh, they have a lock on a lot of making, you know, manufacturing for our products. I mean, how many times do you turn the tag over and you see Made in China? <clears throat> they have uh, monopolized... A good part of our industry. I think we need to uh, we need to be concerned about what the Chinese are up to, especially when it comes to technology. And you've got you know if any of you have been paying attention, you saw this headline earlier this week. This Pentagon official who resigned over the fact that our cybersecurity and artificial intelligence efforts are garbage compared to what the Chinese Communist Party have been doing. Uh, this uh, is a senior cybersecurity official at the Pentagon said he quit because he thought it was impossible for the U.S. to compete with China on AI. Nicholas Chilin, I, I don't think I'm pronouncing that right, joined the U.S. Air Force as its first chief software officer in August of 2018. He worked to equip it and the Pentagon with the most secure and advanced software available. But Shailen quit on September 2nd in his departing LinkedIn post. He cited the Pentagon's reluctance to make cybersecurity and AI a priority as a reason for his resignation. And he tells the Financial Times here, he says, quote, We have no competing fighting chance against China in 15 to 20 years. Right now, it's already a done deal. It is already over, in my opinion. And we know that the Chinese like to spy on us through the various different apps that Tencent owns, for example, TikTok being one of them, uh, whatever, their, whatever their equivalent of Twitter is. What is that called? Do we, what's, what's, the, what's the Chinese equivalent of Twitter? Do we remember? I, I can't remember. But the Chinese like to spy on people. The Chinese Communist Party likes to spy on people. We're not throwing them into gulags, of course. And we know for a very long time that they have been engaged in industrial espionage, stealing a lot of our technology, uh, ignoring patents and, and such uh, legal protections over inventions. They like to reverse engineer a lot of different things and make it up as their own thing, even though it's not. They steal technology left and right. We know this. We have known this for a very long time. 
So <clears throat> given that, plus the saber-rattling that they've been doing over Taiwan lately, I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that we are engaged in a new Cold War with China. And right now, here in the United States, the wrong people are in charge to deal with that. Uh, not to get too deep in the weeds on this, but the Daily Mail out in the UK has an article, I think that came out yesterday, the day before, talking about <clears throat> Joe and Hunter sharing, an e uh, sharing a bank account. <clears throat> Folks, let me let me just I'm just I'm going to take off my editor in chief hat here for a minute. Joe Biden has been bought. This I there's no question in my mind that the Chinese own Joe Biden. I'm going to leave it at that. All right. That's going to do it for us today. We're going to wrap it up. Thank you very much for being here, folks. Oh, just one quick thing. Ethan Van Skyver started following us on Twitter. I feel special now. <clears throat> We've almost made the big time. Very happy. And those of you who have joined us because of that, we're glad you're here, and we do appreciate everybody that's here. No matter how you found us, uh, feel free to share. And, of course, if you're uh, not subscribed to the channel yet, we do invite you to do that as well. Have your notifications turned on. And find us over on Odyssey. We're starting trying to build our audience over there. And uh, all of the different videos and everything else that you can check out over here. Sign up for our newsletter. If you have your thoughts that you want to share, you can do it with comments. You can do it with the uh, email address, live from the bunker at sci-fi4me.com. And uh, we'll do this all again tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat channel. Thanks very much for being here, everyone. And remember, there are four lights. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.